Will you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And we want everybody to be able to look at the passage we'll be considering in Romans 3. These fellows have some Bibles, so as they make their way toward the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. And it is marked at Romans 3. You can turn directly there so that you can see that what we are saying comes directly from God's Word, the Scripture. One of the most formidable challenges for a teacher is to motivate our students so that they will be willing to learn the subject at hand. If the teacher is unable to do that, the student may still endure the class, but they will not benefit from it as they should. Because the more, more personally relevant the student believes the material to be, the more inclined they're going to be to apply themselves to mastering it. This is a particular challenge when the class is not something that you picked, but rather it was picked by somebody else. So, for example, most college programs have classes they require that are not directly tied to your major. When I was pursuing a computer science degree in college, I was not especially motivated for the foreign language class that they required. After all, what does Spanish or French or Swahili have to do with computer programming? Now, I solved that dilemma by uh, getting, the, uh, getting the computer science department and the foreign language department to accept me taking New Testament Greek at the seminary, and they transferred that in because I intended to go to seminary anyway, and so I was motiv- motivated in a way I otherwise would not have been. Now, everybody who bothers, though, to attend a class is motivated in some way. Otherwise, they wouldn't show up at all. But I think you would agree that not all motivations are equal. For instance, if the only reason you attend a class is because it's required in order to graduate, well, then you'll endure it, but probably not put in the hard work that's necessary to master what you're being told. And all of us who sit and listen to someone else talk, whether in school or in a training session at work or to a sermon in church. We all ask ourselves, how does this really matter? And if we don't see the relevance, we may tough it out, but not because we want to. And I fear this goes on in church all the time. Not just our church, churches all over. People go because they have friends there, It's good for their kids, out of habit because I've always gone to church on Sunday or my spouse is going to make life difficult if I don't show up. Thankfully, there are many who attend and listen because they benefit, but many do not. And I ask you then, in which category are you? And you may well answer, well, that depends on what you're talking about. If it's something that applies to me, then obviously I see the benefit. But let me ask you this, is there really any portion of Scripture that is not important for each of us? You know, the Bible says this, all Scripture is useful. And God is the one who wrote this curriculum for us. And He instructs us to go to school on His curriculum every day including and especially every Sunday, to learn and apply His truth. 
But his instruction is not like that foreign language class where its relevance is questionable. Rather, he has written on what matters most and what applies directly to every one of us. You see, the central message of God's textbook, so to speak, is called the gospel. And the gospel is important for every person, not only in this room, but in the entire world, because it deals with our most important and urgent need, namely this, to have a relationship with our Father. Think of it this way. Most of us are aware of the profound effects that loss of a father, an earthly father, can have on a child. Those who do not have their fathers, either due to death or abandonment, and I I fit into that category. My father died when I was 11 years old. And those who do not have their father face much more difficulty in life than those who do. Children in father-absent homes are five times more likely to be poor. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says fatherless children are at a dramatically greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse. Three out of four teenage suicides occur in households where a parent has been absent. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of school. Children from fatherless households are more likely to commit criminal acts than their peers who lived with two parents. Teenage girls reared in homes without fathers are significantly more likely to engage in premarital sex than those reared in homes with both a mother and a father. Now, thankfully, God's grace intervenes for those who love Him, even after the loss of a father to death or divorce. And I can give testimony to that. And so, dear friends who may be in those situations, cling to that promise and that truth from God's Word. But hear this. If separation from human fathers has those, those kinds of profound effects, imagine the effects of separation from our Heavenly Father. All of the destructive behavior I listed earlier is our attempt to replace what's missing when there's no father around. And those who grow up not knowing their father sometimes spend their entire lives trying to find him. The Bible teaches that there is a universal fatherlessness. That all of us, all of us, come into the world separated from God the Father. And please hear this. That separation is not because He abandoned us, but because we have abandoned Him. And the Bible calls this sin. And although it takes many forms, its root is our vain attempt to look for what only our Heavenly Father can provide in God replacements that do not satisfy. We've abandoned God. And the Bible teaches we're not seeking God as these earthly children do with their their human fathers. We've abandoned God and we're not seeking Him But there's good news that applies to every person. God seeks us. And though He did not leave us, He initiates reconciling with us. And so I invite you to look at the outline that we've inserted in your program. And if you'll look near the top, notice the definition that we have for this message of good news, the gospel. 
We have it on the screen for you as well. The gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin. And He's done this through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And just like being estranged from your father has real-world negative effects, so also being reconciled to your heavenly Father has real-world positive effects. And so, friends, although in our time together we're going to look at some old words from passages that are in God's textbook, the Bible, please understand that this lesson applies to you because it applies to all of us. And so let's begin by reminding ourselves that the Bible speaks of God our Father's absolute holiness. The Bible says that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. And even the very best of men in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament and also into the New Testament, throughout the Bible, even the best of men, when they're exposed directly to the holiness of God, they simply shrivel. The Apostle John fell as though dead when in the presence of the glorified Christ. And the Bible also speaks Not only of God's absolute holiness, but it speaks of us. And it speaks of the universal sinfulness of human beings. In Romans chapter 3, to which I've asked you to turn, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now as you put these two things together, the question is, how can sinful men and women be reconciled to a holy heavenly Father? How can people like you and me live in relationship with God? How can the relationship that our first parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed with God in the garden be restored for us for all eternity? And the whole first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, raises that question. Going all the way back to the very first book of your Bible, Genesis. And we have the story that some of you are familiar with where God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac to take him up on a mountain for sacrifice. And the little boy, as they're going up the mountain, says to his father, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham wisely answered, God will provide a lamb. Abraham understood that he needed to look for God to provide a way in which sinful man could be reconciled to God. And all his life, he looked for that one that would be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but Abraham never found it. And neither did David or Isaiah or any of the other characters in the Old Testament, though all of them looked and waited for him. And then one day, a rugged old prophet named John the Baptist was out preaching, and he identified a man from Nazareth, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one, John said, as he pointed to Jesus Christ, this is the one who prophets and priests and kings have longed to see and have waited for. And Jesus Christ then comes into the world. And his coming is the cornerstone of Christianity. In Christ, God has become man. And he has opened the way in which men and women can be reconciled to God. And he has done this through his death and his life and his resurrection. 
Now, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at aspects of that message. And today we're going to look at another extremely important aspect of that, of that message. Let's ask God to help us then, as we do. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel that is universally applicable. Every person in this room needs the gospel. Every person in your world needs the good news and the Savior who is central to that good news message. Help us to explain it clearly. Help those who hear to be open to its message. And may you begin a change in us because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. In his name we pray. Amen. Now this passage to which I've asked you to turn in Romans chapter 3 has some key words that the Bible uses to describe this awesome reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And these words form the basis of our relationship with God. And so again, I invite your attention to verse 22, verse 23 of Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace. Now, how are we justified? Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. As God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Now, there are three key words in this passage. Two of them make the third one possible. I'm going to quickly explain the first two, and then we'll focus on the third. And we need to understand these friends in order to know how we can have a relationship with God the Father. The first key word in that passage is redemption. And the word means that Jesus assumes the debt of our sin. He takes the total bill that is on our account and he pays it. Now what is it that we owe God? God is our creator, makes us as his creatures, and we owe him total obedience. But verse 23 says, all have sinned. No one has given that total obedience. But Jesus has lived a life of total obedience on our behalf. He lived the life that we should have lived. And when we are unable to make our payments so that we incur debt, mounting debt and unpayable debt, Jesus takes the bill and he pays it for us. The second word is actually a phrase in verse 25. Sacrifice of atonement. Jesus' death on the cross relates not only to what he does in redeeming sinners, that is, paying the debt that we owe because of our sin, but it also relates to something he does in relation to God. That's what this sacrifice of atonement is. Because sin has not only placed us in debt to God, Hear this, it's also provoked God's anger toward us. And consider the illustration of a couple. We'll call them Neil and Sally. And Neil gets drunk. And driving the car home causes an accident in which Sally is permanently injured. She'll never walk again. Imagine the legal case that might follow from that, brought by Sally against Neil. She is rightly angry at his irresponsible behavior. And the key issue in the court case is this. What will satisfy Sally? 
The problem with our reconciliation with God is not only that we have debts to God that only Christ can pay, it's also that God is opposed to us unless his anger is taken away. The Bible teaches this holy God has a settled opposition to all sin. He is determined to destroy all sin. And as long as sin is found in us, we find that God is opposed to us. His judgment hangs over us. And the question then is this, what will it take to satisfy God? And the Bible gives this wonderful answer in verse 25. God presented Jesus Christ as the sacrifice of atonement. So that when Jesus died, he not only paid the debt to redeem us, but he offered the sacrifice that would satisfy God toward us. He satisfies the wrath of God. He satisfies the justice of God. And so here is the central message of the gospel. God became man in Jesus Christ. God bears the wrath of God for us. And God pays the price that God demands. Do you see God's the central player in this thing? And all of this happened at the cross. And we need to see them. How does all this apply to us, personally, individually? How does all of what happened at the cross relate to me? How does this achievement of the death of Jesus actually affect my life? How can it benefit me right here in March of 2013? And in order to answer that question, we're going to look at some, in some detail at the third great Bible word which is used in this passage and is at the heart of the gospel. Notice again, verses 23 to 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are, and here is this key word, all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus as God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. With this third word, This triangle of relationships between God and man and Christ is complete. Christ redeems sinners. He he satisfies the Father. And the result is that freely and lovingly and willingly and righteously, God justifies the sinner who has faith in the blood of Christ on the basis of that redemption and sacrifice of atonement that He has provided. So if all of this redeeming and sacrificing work done by the Lord Jesus Christ was for the purpose that we could be justified, then wouldn't you agree it's pretty important for us to know what's meant by justified or justification? I'm indebted to Pastor Colin Smith for his very helpful explanation of what justification is. There are many who believe that to be justified means this. To be made righteous. That is, you become a righteous person. That's what many think it means. As you can tell by the way I'm phrasing it, it doesn't mean that. But many think it means to be made righteous. That is, God takes a bad person and makes them good. He changes what you are. And so they say it's like a sick person who receives an injection and the medicine injected into them begins to flow into their bloodstream and into their body to make chemical changes that will move them in the direction of health. 
And so it is, they say, a change in our nature. It's a work by which God makes the sick person well, by which he makes the unrighteous become righteous. And if they're asked how it is that God makes someone become righteous, the answer is that God forgives our past sins, and he gives us a righteousness that is like a spotless robe. But hear this. It's your job now to preserve that spotless robe and keep it clean. And how do you keep it clean? By living according to the law of God. And what if you fail to live according to the law of God? Well, that's where there has to be some kind of system now of penance, or the Protestant version, the so-called altar call. And so the Christian life, according to this approach, is for you to preserve and for you to grow in the righteousness Christ has given you so that when you reach the end of your life, you will be a truly righteous or justified person. And so then the great question at the end of your life in that scenario is this. Have you preserved the righteousness given to you? Now think about that. Does anyone here think you could answer yes to that question? If our salvation depends on us preserving righteousness, then the very best of us could simply say, I'm not sure whether I'll make it to heaven or not. We might say we hope in the mercy of God that we'll enter heaven, but none of us could ever be sure that we've preserved that righteousness. If I think about the best day I lived this past week, the fact is I could have used it better. And that says nothing of my worst days. So if justification is the way that God makes me righteous, I look at my life and I see that, yes, in some ways I've made a beginning of fulfilling the law of God, but in no way am I close to completing the law of God. And so I find myself in doubt, and very reasonable doubt, I might add. And this is why Martin Luther was such a tormented soul nearly 500 years ago now. He had been taught that he must preserve his own righteousness by a series of works, things that he had to do. And he had no peace within himself because he knew that even when his actions were right, there was still the issue of his thoughts and his words, not to mention those actions and thoughts and words that he failed to do or think or say, which are also sin. And so he beat himself, literally in order to subdue his sinful nature, and of course that didn't help. And a mentor suggested he begin studying the Bible. What a concept. And he began looking at the New Testament in its original language, and he started in God's good providence with the book of Romans. And as he did, he found that, much to his surprise and to his delight, the word justification in the Bible does not mean to be made righteous. But rather, it means to be declared righteous. Now, what's the difference? Made righteous versus declared righteous. Well, consider this illustration. Suppose you have a full house at Comerica Park. The Tigers are on the field. The visiting team's up to bat. The pitcher on the mound is on the mound, and the umpire's positioned behind the plate to call balls and strike. The umpire's job is to do that very thing. Call them as they are, and if he doesn't, he'll have 40,000 umpires who paid to get in, as Ernie Harwell used to say, who are going to be very angry at him. Now, suppose the pitcher's having a bunch of trouble. In fact, he's thrown 10 balls in a row, and the umpire is not too happy about it. 
So the umpire calls timeout, strolls to the mound, tells the pitcher he needs some help, and he's going to show him how to improve. In fact, he says, let's start now. And he begins showing him what he's doing wrong and how he can do it better. Now, we all know it's not the umpire's job to improve the pitcher's game. There's someone whose job it is to do that. That's the pitching coach. But it's not the umpire. The umpire is to call what he sees, ball or strike. Now, to have the umpire making the pitcher better is to hopelessly confuse two very different categories. Justification has nothing to do with making us better, making us righteous. It has everything to do with the umpire declaring what is righteous and what is not. It's the role of the Holy Spirit in another fancy term called sanctification, and we'll see that in a couple weeks. That's what helps us improve our game, to help us live a Christian life. But in justification, hear this, friends, God acts not as the coach, but as the umpire. He observes what we're throwing, how we're living, and He makes one of two calls, either justified or condemned, strike or ball. Now, if justification is God observing my life, and declaring if I'm in the strike zone or not. What hope is there that I will ever be justified? If God analyzes our lives in strict justice, every word, every thought, every deed, what hope is there that He will declare us to be right down the middle? Is that going to happen for anyone here? Even steroids won't get that done for you. So how can you and I ever be justified? Look at verse 23 again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, as God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood, to be received by faith. In other words, it's saying that the way God justifies a person, declares them to be right before Him, is not on the basis of their own performance. Because we're all out on the mound throwing a lot of wild pitches and balls. But it says He does it freely. Freely on the basis of redemption and on the basis of the sacrifice that's offered by our Lord Jesus on the cross. And this justification that's freely given on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross involves two things. Now stay with me for these two things, please. It involves our sin being debited to Christ's account. Many of you know that years ago, uh, my two nephews, Matt and Justin, lived with us during their junior high and high school years. For the first year that they lived with us, they attended a local high school. After that, we enrolled them in a Christian school. As far as private schools go, it was very moderately priced. Nevertheless, tuition for the both of them uh, was thousands of dollars each year. Now, like any bill that we owe, there are three ways to settle that school bill. The school could drop all charges. That would have been beautiful. We can pay the bill as we intended to. Or a third way is it can be charged to somebody else's account. And one year, that's exactly what happened. 
Early in one of those years, I went to the school to offer our monthly sacrifice. <laughs> and I was told, you don't know anything. And I said, what do you mean? Did Kim pay our bill already this month? They said, no, your bill has been paid by someone, not only for this month, but for the entire year. Now, this bill was debited to someone else's account, that someone unknown to us to this very day, and placed in their name. It was our bill, but it was counted as if it were someone else's so that they actually wrote the check and paid it. And it was a wonderful thing to hear that receptionist say, there's no charge. And truly, there was no charge, but only because it was paid by another. It was not that the school had dropped the charges or that the bill had been paid by us, but the specific charges that belonged to us were assumed by someone else. And this is how it is with justification. God declares that there is no charge that is held against the believer, not because he's dropped the charges or that we've perfectly fulfilled the Christian life, but because he charges our sin to Christ and Christ picks up the tab. This is why there cannot be justification then, friends, without redemption. There has to be someone who picks up the bill and pays the charges if God is going to say there's no charge that's laid against your account. But this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. There's a second dimension to justification also. God not only takes our sin and debits it to Christ, but He takes Christ's righteousness and credits it to us. Now, this is similar to the concept of frequent flyer, bonus miles on an airline. You build up these things by flying a lot or buying lots of stuff on an airline credit card. I have one of these airline credit cards. It's taken years to get enough purchases to accumulate sufficient points for a a single ticket. But some of you who fly a lot spend and spend a lot, and as a result, you're able to build up or bank miles to your account. And you can sometimes transfer points or miles to the account of others. In fact, I know folks who have done that. And when that happens, credit is being given to one who did nothing to earn it. And that's exactly what God does when He credits Christ's righteousness to those of us who in no way have earned it. In justification, God charges our sin to Christ And he also credits the sinner with the very righteousness of Jesus. This is the way it has always been when God rescues, delivers, saves someone. Always. Just look at chapter 4, just the next chapter. And notice verse 3. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is Abraham going in the first part of your Bible very early on. It was the same way for him. He had to believe God, and then God credited righteousness that he did not have to Abraham. Now this crediting of Christ's righteousness to us, this debiting of our sin to Christ that God does, Friends, this is as real as the nails that pierce the hands of Jesus 
and the spear that was thrust into his side. He really bore your sins. And you really are credited with his righteousness. Thanks be to God. Now in that insert, that outline that we placed in your program, and we've had for the last few weeks, I want you to see then that God's grace, you see at the top, delivers us from a number of things giving us something instead. And we saw in the last few weeks at the top that in calling us to himself, God delivers us from the persuasion of sin and he gives us a new perspective. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can listen to that online uh, if you so choose at our website. And then God, we saw last week, regenerates us. He gives us spiritual life and he delivers us from the power of sin, giving us a new heart. And in justification, this is what God's grace does. It delivers us, thanks be to God, from the penalty of sin. And it gives us a brand new record before God. And so even though I am still a sinner and struggle with sin, God sees me through the righteousness of Jesus. Now how do I get this? How do you get this? The passage tells us, and throughout Scripture it tells us, you get this by faith. And the word faith in your New Testament, anybody who's been with us for any length of time, what's the word faith in your New Testament mean? It's a synonym for belief. By believing. Notice verse 22 of chapter 3. This righteousness is given through faith, through believing in Jesus Christ. Or again in verse 25 of chapter 3, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then based on all of this, verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So how am I justified? How am I declared righteous by God? It's not by me maintaining spotless purity and living the Christian life, which I can never do, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then is faith? What is believing? We'll consider another young couple. We'll call them Tom and Mary. And they start dating. Slowly they get to know each other. And unlike perhaps previous experiences, the more they get to know, the more they like, and the more they're drawn to each other. Next thing you know, they're walking down the aisle, and before God and human witnesses, they're committing to each other for life. And together they stand in church before the pastor who turns to Tom and he asks solemnly, Tom, will you have Mary to be your lawful wedded wife? Will you love her, honor her, keep her in sickness and in health? Tom says that he will. And the pastor turns to Mary and she responds, I will as well. And you see, friends, like that, faith begins by coming to know Jesus, who he is, where he has come from, what he is about. It begins with discovering that he is God the Son, that he came from heaven, and that he has come to redeem sinners. But this faith is more than knowledge. The Bible says the devils know about God the Son. 
And it's quite possible to learn about Jesus and be no better off than if you had never heard his name. Faith involves a two-way commitment in which Christ receives me and I receive him. Martin Luther describes it, in fact, like a marriage. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. And the Holy Spirit is the one who conducts this marriage. Indeed, he's the one who draws us to Christ in the first place. So think of it this way. It's as if 2,000 years ago, the Spirit of God said to Christ, will you take a young man in southeast Michigan named Ken, who will be born in the second half of the 20th century and be his Savior and Lord? Will you bear his debts? Will you offer your life as a sacrifice for his sins? And on the cross, Jesus said, I will. And then on a day in 1981, the Holy Spirit spoke through the Bible to a young man in southeast Michigan named Ken. As I was reading the Bible, and I had learned the Bible my whole life, I grew up in a pastor's home, but I was reading the Bible, and the Holy Spirit called me. And in effect, he calling me, asked me, will you receive Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? And I said, I can do take you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord of my life. And when the vows have been said by both parties in a marriage ceremony, the two become a new legal entity. And without losing their individual identities, God sees them as one. The documents are signed. The bride has a new name. All that belongs to the one becomes the property of the other. Now think of what being joined to you meant for Jesus. The holy God, God the Son, had to take your sin as if it were his own. But now think of what being joined to Jesus means for you. You possess the righteousness of Christ as if it were your own. And that's why the Bible says this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the redemption that's possible for everyone becomes actual for you. The sacrifice that's sufficient for everyone becomes efficient for you. All that the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross becomes active in your own experience. And at that moment, God declares you justified. Now, friends, what would happen in a wedding service if one partner made his or her vow and the other remained silent and gave no response? Well, one thing is for sure, right? There would be no marriage. Christ has declared his readiness to be your Savior. And he is ready to take your sins and he offers you his very righteousness, but the transaction is not made until by faith you take him as your Savior. As in the marriage service, the response, I will, could not be simpler, but the commitment is life-changing in its significance. And I say at the bottom of the outline inserted in your program, you see the bold portion, take-home truth? Those who believe in Jesus receive full forgiveness and pardon. And we stand before God complete in Him.
Now, what do you need to do? You need to say, I will. You need to ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. What do I do now? Realize that, in fact, you're a sinner. You can't make yourself righteous. No way, no how. You're a good sinner. You're a nice sinner. You're a polite sinner. But none of that will work with God. So realize you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross for you and repent of your sin. Lord, I want to follow you with my life. I want to go your way and not my way. And receive Jesus Christ into your life. How do you do that? You believe, you ask. Lord, I've come to believe that I'm a sinner and I need you to save me, rescue me from my sin. I ask you to do that. Be my Savior and Lord. I want to learn of you. I want to follow you with my life. We're going to bow our heads in just a moment and pray. And when we do, wherever you are, you from your heart to God can pray to Him in your own words. There's no magic formula to that. You simply cry out to God, I'm a sinner and I need you, Jesus, as my Savior. The Bible says, He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, our Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. The universal fatherlessness with which we are all afflicted when we come into this world has been settled because of the person and work of God the Son on the cross and in His perfectly righteous life for us so that we can now be brought into the family of God and You are now our Father and we Your children. We thank You for giving us Your Word to explain to us our predicament and to explain to us your love for us and what you have done for us. Lord, you have made it oh so clear in the good news of the gospel that we can have a relationship with you. I pray that there are people here, men and women, young people, boys and girls, who are crying out from their heart to you right now in this sacred moment and acknowledging their sin and believing that Jesus, God the Son, has come to earth to do for them what they could not do for themselves. He died the death that we deserved. He lived the life that we should have lived. And it's applied to us when we come to Him in faith. And for those of us who have done that, for me at age 19, Lord, we thank You for the change, the profound change now that has made in our outlook. You have declared us righteous. And now we want to be righteous. More righteous today than yesterday, this, this week than last. But Lord, we know that this side of heaven, we will never achieve the perfection of Jesus in our experience. But we know because you have promised that you have declared us righteous despite our sin because of the righteousness of God the Son. We thank you for these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.